hosts and hostess, reverend sir, ladies and gentlemen, your bar mitzvah, Alan. One, two, three, testing. Yes, that's me. The date is Saturday the 7th of September, 1974, 40 years ago. I have been looking forward to this day for what seems a lifetime. And now, the great day has arrived. It is Reunited with my past, standing at the top table, the centre of attention, with my family gazing up at me, and all the guests focusing on my every word. It's amazing to have a recording like this, to meet the unbroken voice of my teenage self, but now a man, according to Jewish law. And as I ponder this rather unusual meeting of myself now with then, I'm reminded of how Jewish tradition, history and daily life have always been bound by the concept of meetings. In fact, the word for synagogue is Bet Knesset, which means house of meeting. And certainly if my experience of shul is anything to go by, plenty of chatting goes on there too. For this episode of Sounds Jewish, I've uncovered a remarkable collection of people's stories, of their meetings, the ones that are private and personal, one-off encounters, or are shared time and time again. Mum, Dad, Reverend Sir... Grandparents, relatives and friends, welcome to my party. I feel that the microphone captures my relief to be finally performing my permits for speech that I've been practicing for hours in my bedroom. It is wonderful to have all you, all our friends and relatives around me, helping to share my permits for party. A special thanks, Mum and Dad, for taking such good care of me, with such devotion and love, and giving me such a great start in life. I will do you proud in the years to come. I was aware of my parents' hopes, expectations and even nerves that day. And I knew that in my speech, I had to give them a bit of pleasure. Nachas. I am very fortunate in having such devoted parents, as not everybody is so lucky. A friend of mine came home from school the other day and found his parents had moved. (laughs) Getting the crowd on my side was vital. Thank you, Reverend Freilach, for your patience in helping with my bar mitzvah. And I am so pleased to see you have fully recovered from your operation. I'm not sure if Reverend Freilach wanted everyone in the room to know about his operation. But that was a line I was told by my dad to use. It did seem a little mature at the time. But then again, I was a man. And that's what grown-ups do. Finally, to all you relatives and friends, thank you for coming. For without you, this room would be terribly empty. (laughs) Hope you all have a fantastic time. Thank you. I'm 13 again, wearing a brown crushed velvet suit that matched my father's, in a packed-out room in a plush West End hotel, with a soundtrack of top ten hits bashed out by the live band, The Dark Blues. And now the dancing begins with your bar mitzvah and your hostess. The tune is Beautiful Sunday, over to the dark blues. (laughs) 
But then in a blink, I'm back in the year 2014. My father, my grandparents, most of my aunts and uncles have passed on. I'm no longer that chirpy, wide-eyed boy, forever young. But I certainly recognise my younger self in that old recording. That was marvellous. Give him a big round of applause. That was wonderful. Ladies and gentlemen, don't, go, uh, don't come round the front here now, Alan, because I'm going to ask you and your parents and Carol to go down to the cake. There's a most delightful cake in front of the dark blues. That is about to be cut. As soon as that event has taken place, we will have the dancing. In a few months' time, it'll be my own son's bar mitzvah, and I hope another fantastic time had by all. And of course, we'll be recording it. So years on, let's hope he can meet up again with his 13-year-old self. And so say all of us. I wonder what it must be like to meet your real self having discovered that your very own history was not what you thought it was. Jola Jojinska was born in Poland to a Catholic father and unknown to her, a Jewish mother who died when Yola was a baby. Yola was brought up in a convent during the war, which saved her life. Her father remarried, and she grew up as a typical Catholic girl in post-war communist Poland. But one day, her stepmother revealed to Yola who she really was, that her Jewish mother's family had perished in the Holocaust, except there was an aunt who had emigrated to Palestine in 1933. This set Yola off on a journey of discovery and life-changing encounters. Her own daughter, Karen Glazer, had grown up knowing some of her mother's stories, though it's inconceivable today to imagine what it must have been like for Yola to learn about her past in the cultural landscape of 1950s Poland. Karen and Yola have very kindly given Sounds Jewish an ear to a remarkable conversation. But Sunday lunchtime at my parents' house is always a joyous and lively affair. Animated conversations between my daughter, son and my dad. My mum always feeding us delicious Polish food. I have like so much your mum makes them really. People eat them in Poland with sour cream like Steve. They eat them with apple puree and they also eat them But growing up in Cardiff I knew it wasn't just the food we put in our mouths that made us different from my friends' families. With her strong Polish accent, my mum's background was also very different from theirs, and sometimes I'd glimpse a certain wistfulness in her. In complete contrast to my own upbringing, I knew mum had grown up unloved and unwanted, but I only knew her story in fragments. It was when my 12-year-old daughter recently asked me about her grandmother's childhood in Poland that I realised I really didn't have the complete story. It was time for me to hear it properly, starting in 1940s Warsaw. I was brought up a Catholic and I was an ardent believer then. Mm-hmm. And to be told that the people that I heard of that killed Christ, that they were thieves and, and, and uh, really immoral people in every... Uh, there, were, there was a scourge on the nation that hosted them was terrible to discover that I am one of them. And uh, like all Jews in Poland then, not just me in my peculiar circumstances, uh, 
I would never ever say to anybody aloud that I was Jewish. I would deny it with all my might. It's just, it's just terrible admission. It's like having to say, yes, I am a thief, prostitute, murderer or whatever. Yeah. That's how it felt. But can you tell me how it was that you made that trip? To that I went to Israel? Yes. Well, I was going some shopping in Warsaw and I passed something that I noticed there before one of the um, entrance to what looked like normal block of flats had a um, board announcing that there was an editorial office of a Jewish um, newspaper or magazine, I don't know. And I just walked in and I said, I understand that I have an aunt in Palestine, as I said it, I didn't know much about Israel. Could you help me find her? And they gave me um, an address, which I think was Magen David, um, search bureau to fill in and of course you, there was nobody that you could ask was there there was no one I could ask you, at all you had no sources of information whatsoever no, did none at all I didn't know how that relative that I might have in Israel would feel towards me in the meantime a letter came from that relative my aunt in Israel Mm-hmm. And I remember I was literally afraid to open it because I thought, what if she says, don't write to me, leave us alone, I don't want to know her. Well, and without me having the chance to tell her, I only am looking for her to to ask if she's got my mother's photograph. Shall I stop it for a little bit? Yeah. We're back on now, so it's very difficult for you to recount, and it's very difficult for me for me to listen to. But please carry on, Mum. So the let so the letter arrived. The letter arrived, and as I said, I was really, really afraid to open it in case it said, "Leave me alone. Don't I don't want to know you." And I remember I was still uh, Catholic in those days, uh, and I went on my knees and prayed before I opened the letter, hoping there was no rejection. Uh, in it. Eventually, but it took some time, I opened the letter and I started praying again with thanks to God because she said, Yola, I'm so glad we found you. I, The, the whole house is just in, in great joy and, and, and uh, it's almost like a festival. And she said, we've, I've been looking for you for so long and I didn't want to look openly because I didn't know if you knew you were Jewish. If you didn't know and found out from me that would be a terrible shock for you because I know Poland is so anti-Semitic. I was just, I can't remember a joy like that before or since, it, well, since perhaps because I had children, but I was just so excited and I read and reread this letter and the letter ended with words, please send me your photograph so that uh, for the time being I'll see you on the on paper, but, but, but I'll see you. used to send parcels to Poland. The first one I remember, she sent parcel of oranges. And ja- I, Jaffa oranges. Oh, yes. And, <laughs> yeah. and uh, um, when this parcel was delivered, we almost attacked it to oranges were just such unheard of luxury almost that we, it was just unbelievable. 
and we started eating them. I still had my coat on. When did she make it clear to you if she did that she was hoping that you would visit her in Israel? Yes. I, when, when did that? Yes. She did indeed help me. She sent me now and then money and the, the sum that was allowed was $12 every month or every three months, I can't remember. The maximum. It was a huge sum for me. Yeah. I paid my father's debts out of that, I remember. And she... And uh, she... Yes, it was the day that was the anniversary of my mother's death, 1st of March, I remember, 1963, when I received a letter from her. And the letter said, I didn't want to tell you till now, but since we established contact, I've been saving money to pay for your ticket so you can come to Israel and, and meet us all and we can meet you. What did you? What did that feel like? I I just thought I was in the middle of some dream that I I, I that I imagined these things to go to Israel. Not only to go so far when any travel from Poland was almost non-existent and un- unavailable. It was a communist country, um, and almost like no, uh, North Korea uh, today, um, and uh, also to have it paid for and go and meet my family. I couldn't believe it. And is the meeting itself um, at the port of Haifa? Mm. Is that still memorable? What, what, what was that? What was that like? Can you describe to me, yes. um, if you can, what it was like when you disembarked? Mm. You know, when when did you when did you see her for the first time? I cannot remember the moment of uh, December, uh, disembarkation, but I do remember uh, all passengers were moved to um, a place which was quite a large place in the, I suppose waiting hall um, or arrivals hall and around us was the metal net behind which there were people who uh, were there to to, to greet um, the arrivals and I started looking around because there were so many people waiting behind this uh, uh, wire fence. So I'm imagining it was like a, a garden fence. Yeah, mm. I'm imagining almost a sea of, of, sea of, of countenances. Faces, yes, yes, yes. And and, and I ha- think my aunt spotted me first, and I think she called me, and I approached. Oh. I approached the fence. It's all right. I can feel the rush of tears. <laughs> I approached the fence, That's and well. there she was. And although we couldn't embrace each other at that stage, because at that moment, because she was on one side of the fence and I was in mm. another, but our hands touched oh, gosh. through the fence, and this was the first time I touched someone who. Was my, of my mother's family, my mother's sister, my Jewish family. Don't forget, at that stage, I was still conscious of being Jewish, but conscious in an unpleasant way, because for Poles, then, it was a sub-human race, Jews, completely differently than I feel no, uh, now about, yeah. ever, about it, obviously. But just touching her... And we didn't say anything for a while, just holding our hands through the fence together. Gosh, that's such a powerful, moving image. Mm. I shall never forget it, yeah. and, and nor would I want to forget it. 
that's the power of family, isn't it? You'd never met this lady mm. before. You were in your mid-twenties. Mm. Um, and you hugged... I, 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 with, I really hugged. And with, I knew with, that I... It's not a normal hug. Not no. that I've been hugged much in my childhood. Come to think of it, I don't remember being hugged ever. But my my love for her instant was well. No, I've really? loved her already when I when I've established contact with her. But the meeting and staying there confirmed all the wonderful thoughts that I had about her. I could not have met anybody more marvelous. No, anybody who changed my life for the better to the extent that she did. Yeah. And and she did it with much more love than money that she had, even though she, she, she helped me uh, financially as much as she could. Her love was far, far, far more important. And h- mm-hmm. how long did that wonderful summer um, in 1963 mm-hmm. how, last in Israel? How long were you there for? I was there for... Two and a half months, no other. <laughs> that's the longest holidays of my life ever and the most fantastic. And were there holidays. other encounters with family? When I was then on, on with my aunt, her friends from Poland often used to come and visit. And when they looked at me, their first remark was always that I looked so much like my mother. That must have, that must have felt so nice to fantastic, hear. Fantastic, fantastic. It's such a pleasure. You would have thought it's of no significance, but it was no, for listen, me. It's and nice to be told that, you know, speaking as a mother now rather than mm. a daughter, it's nice to be told that one's children um, look like one. You know, mm. it's always a source mm. of pleasure, but, you know, in your situation to be told that must have been, you know, mm. powerful beyond imagination. I just seem to have found my place in the world. Whilst Yola's remarkable story is bound up in the chaos and turbulence of the 20th century, our next story is a different meeting altogether, a ritual that has been practiced by Jews for years. Way back in the late 19th century, when the big wave of Jewish immigrants arrived in East London from Eastern Europe, they brought with them the pleasures of the vapour baths. These were shared moments of camaraderie, usually meetings between men after a hard day at work. Amazingly, this culture hasn't completely died out. These bars are still dotted around in London, tucked away out of sight. The banter is still as lively, and the dress code hasn't changed much either. Nick Kassenbaum has immersed himself in this secret world to write a play based on his own family. When I was a young boy growing up in Woodford, Essex, I would sometimes hear the older men in my family talk about the baths, the Schwitz. Whenever they did, it would bring smiles to their faces. They would talk about it like a secret club, a place where jokes were told, deals were done, and people were schmeist, whatever that meant. However much I wanted to go, it wasn't something that young Jews of my generation in the suburbs did. And on top of that, my mum wasn't keen, and my dad wanted me to go to Spurs instead. When thinking of the topic for my new play, I realised it was under my nose the whole time. My granddad, Popper Allen, who's been going down the bath since he was a kid, was over the moon that I was finally about to enter the fold. He said to me that the one we had to go to was the new Dockland steam baths in an industrial estate in Canning Town, East London. There were others that had been turned into posh bars or even knocked down. 
this was the one that has kept its Schwitz status. It was an early start one Saturday morning. While others were packing up their sitters and talluses ready for shul, or having a lion, I was packing up my robe and wrap, unsure what exactly was going to happen. The place was full when I got there, full of men. Some who had been friends since they were kids, some who had met only in the Schwitz. The Schwitz acts as a stage, a counselling room and a parliament. No topic is too serious or too crude and no voice is unheard. And they're all there, naked and sweaty reclining on plastic furniture, surrounded by damp tiles, running showers, steam rooms and saunas. <laughs> they all welcome me with open arms, some shouting who are you, some vaguely recognising me and some excited to finally meet my papa's grandson. Well, he's my granddad. He's grandfather. He never said that. I thought I recognised him. He got married in the market in the garden. Yeah, yeah now no, I'm with... Um, before I could answer any of their questions, I was dragged into the steam room ready for my first schmice. And the schmice is the main attraction. The tradition that Jews brought over from Eastern Europe, and it was finally my turn to be inaugurated into this age old ritual. The most important thing about giving a schmice is having the bacon well soaked up. Yes. I was told to lay down on a hard bed with my wrap put over my head. Then I felt a weird sensation, a big wet mop, which they call a basin, running the length of my body. And then I heard my papa say the words I never thought would come out of his mouth. Roll over. And then he did the front leaving no crevice uncleaned. What I found amazing was how aggressive and macho the men are towards each other, whilst at the same time being completely starkers and washing each other. Once the schmice is over, we all sat down by a marble table, stuffing our faces with piles of oranges, melons and pineapples. My papa said to me, it was nice to have something refreshing after the heat of the schmice. You know, you, you don't have to wait for the round to come if you want to come on your own. I will do now. I'd never been anywhere where there was so much genuine love and affection between men, mixed with some of the most candid speech I've ever heard. <laughs> These men meet once or twice a week and revel in each other's company and conversation. There's nowhere else they could go to have such intimate and aggressive contact with each other, almost in secret, away from their wives, families and work. Many of them have known each other for years, growing up together in Stamford Hill or the East End. Now they've moved on to the promised land of Stanmore, Edgware and Essex, 
this is pretty much the only place they get to see each other. Back in the real world, in the cafe, my granddad and his mates were now all covered up in their robes, but the shticks didn't end. They carried on winding each other up. <laughs> yeah, normally they do give a Schmeiss Ponce of the Year award. Oh, Siegenfield got it for three yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Harold Miller got it once, yeah. didn't yeah. And what does that mean? It was almost impossible to get anyone to give me a straight answer. I tried to get one out of my granddad, but all he wanted to talk about was the spreads they used to put out before the barbs got calves. Used to lay a big table out with smoked salmon. Yeah. You know, like you come back from a little oil. Yeah. It was kiddish. Yeah. And they used to lay out everything. Uh, bush, smoked salmon, bagels, uh, salt beef, the whole gun. It wasn't until I spoke to my granddad's old mate, Eddie, that I got a sense of what really draws these old boys to the baths. He's the face of the Schwitz, the boss. In the steam room, everyone listens to him, and his schmices are legendary. My dad brought me to the baths when I was 10 years of age, and he used to put me in the steam room, put a towel over my head, and then come with buckets of water and just pour it right over the top. And that's how I got used to the steam. And so did you go every week from when you were 10 then? Every week, regular as clockwork. And all these old guys, they remember me when I was a boy. Really? And you still come now? Still come now. What is it, bit, what is it about the bars that keeps bringing you back? I love the steam. Just, it's my life. And have you got some of your best mates down there, do you think? All my best mates. All my best. I've known this man for 50-odd years. George, 50-odd years. You knew me when I was that high, didn't you, George? Jewish people are always used to sharing important moments together, whether in celebration or prayer. It's always about being with people. But what if you find yourself alone, with no one to turn to? For this final story, I met with Johnny Benjamin, whose very life depended on a chance encounter with a stranger. I had a fairly normal childhood, I'd say. Um, I had good friends, had good family around me. Um, I went to a local synagogue, which was Edgeware Reform Synagogue. And um, then I went to, uh, my secondary school was JFS. And um, yeah, I had a really good education. And um, up until I was about 10, I'd say, I had a, a normal childhood. And then from 10 years old? From 10 years old, I began to hear a voice in my head and um, I thought at the time that it was an angel and I thought I'd actually been blessed to hear this voice and I felt kind of a connection to God through it. Um, And at the same time, I began having delusions. Well, I didn't know there were delusions at the time, but I'd seen the film The Truman Show with Jim Carrey and I believed that I was also in my own version of that, and that there were cameras watching me all around. And um, at first, you know, it was just a kind of thought that was always there, but then it began to become kind of my reality. And that reality, was that something that was shared with other people? I didn't tell anyone. I didn't tell anyone about The Truman Show because I thought that everyone was watching me on a sixth channel on TV, so I thought everyone knew. So 
didn't need to tell anyone about it. But it did get increasingly difficult to live with. When I was about 16, 17, the voice in my head changed and it became what I thought was a devil. And um, it began to torment me and challenge me to do certain things all the time. Just subtle things, like, you know, moving um, an object from, from one place to the other. But I'd have to do that because if I didn't, then the devil told me uh, a, ma a member of my family would be punished, like my dad would have a car accident that same day. So then it began to get really, really tough to live with. Um, and I began to get very depressed and actually suicidal at that point. I was, I was hiding everything. Um, and it got tough, you know, when I started to self-harm, it got really hard to hide things from, from my parents. Um, but I was so embarrassed and I was so ashamed. Um, and I, I think within the Jewish community, we, at that time, we weren't talking about mental health. I never got any mental health education at school um, at the time. So to be honest, I didn't even know I was really suffering from mental health problems. As, as I went through uni, I just things just became worse and worse, and eventually I, I ended up having a breakdown. I was trying to ask for help, though. I mean, I was going to the doctor a lot and saying, I'm really not feeling good, and they'd give me different antidepressants to try. But it wasn't dealing with the schizophrenia, you know, the, the voice and the delusion. It's just getting worse. And at the beginning of 2008, six years ago, Your journey into the centre of London. Could you just take me through your thought processes? Sure. Um, so I, I'd just been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which is this combination of schizophrenia and depression. And um, I was in hospital at the time, uh, and I'd run away from hospital that day. It's just because I, I couldn't come to terms with the diagnosis, couldn't cope with, with the voice and the, the delusion and... Um, I just thought, there's, there's no point of going on. So, were you in the waiting room? Were you in a bed? Do you just literally get up and yeah, escape? No, yeah, I, I said to the nurse on duty, I said, oh, I need to go for a, for a cigarette. And I don't smoke, but she let me outside and I made a quick dash and I went to the nearest train station and got the train up to central London. I planned it all the night before. Um, I just got to a point where I couldn't see past that despair and... Didn't, didn't want to carry on so I planned it all out and got the train to central London arrived there and went straight to the bridge and climbed over the railings Why did you choose Waterloo Bridge? Um, I chose Waterloo Bridge because um, it was just a, a spot that I liked really in, in central London um, To be honest I mean I, I thought about taking my life quite a few years you know thought had always been there and I'd always said if I was going to take my life then I'd go there and so I did did you take anything with you was it just yourself just just myself just myself um, I um, for some reason I don't know why but I left the hospital with, with a, a hoodie but I chucked that away I don't know why it was a freezing cold January day so I was just standing there in a t-shirt I don't know what was going through my mind how long were you standing at the bridge for, do you think? It's so difficult to say how long I was actually on the edge of the bridge for because it was just... You're in such a state of distress and um, you're trying to trying to kind of will yourself to actually take your feet off the edge and um, it felt like an eternity, to be honest, you know? It felt like time stood still. 
and the sounds. It's cold. Yes. The sounds of the people going by, the, the traffic you can just hear. It's the, the river itself, the water. What? It's, it's terrifying. It's terrifying because, as well, you can't see what's going on behind you because... Um, obviously, I, I climbed over the railing, so all I could see was, you know, the view over London and, and the Thames. I kept looking down to the Thames below, and yeah, it was, it was absolutely terrifying, the most scariest moment of my life. What Johnny couldn't see was a young man, Neil Laybourne, walking across the bridge to the gym where he worked. The time was around 10, 10.30. Um, I can remember seeing him in the distance, you know, it wasn't sort of like he came up quite suddenly. Um, I can remember seeing this figure, you know, hunched over the side of Waterloo Bridge. He was quite far away, actually. He was, you know, like two-thirds of the way up, going toward the north end of the bridge. Um, And straight away, you know, you just knew why he was sitting there. It was quite obvious. I think, you know, your mind tries to, to conclude something straight away and... You know, there was a few circumstances. One, you know, it was um, it was a horrible day. It was raining. It was very dark um, in the, the clouds. Um, Johnny, it, the way he was hunched over, you know, he was he was only wearing a t-shirt. He must have been freezing. Um, he was very still. He wasn't looking around. You know, it it looked like he was, you know, deep in thought. It just the alarm bells ringing. This guy's gonna jump. Yeah. And you had to do something about it. Yeah, the first thought that came into my head was, you know, if I get to him, I will speak to him. This kind of came just out of the blue, out of nowhere. tell me why you're sitting here gently yeah. or and yeah and you got his attention yeah that was the important thing for him for him to look at you or I can't remember if he gave me his attention straight away but he it registered with him you know it did kind of of that world that I was in and it was a shock you know I was I was like you know in my own world trying to trying to kind of concentrate on what I was about to do and then suddenly this this voice came from from the right side of me and um obviously it distracted me and I was like uh it was it was it was a shock I didn't expect it at all and um it was the voice you heard first mm. yeah I think I think it was the voice I heard first and um and then I the words to see. um don't do this, you know, please don't do this. Um, you know, we, we can talk about this. You know, tell me, tell me, tell me what's going on. Um, and it was that invitation, actually, that, that kind, that really kind, compassionate invitation to, to talk that actually allowed me to say, I'm, I'm going to kill myself. Um, kind of just saying those words alleviated some of the, some of those thoughts, just, just to, release that just to say to someone I'm feeling just absolutely like I can't go on anymore I need to take my life there was something in that something was released 
there was one other thought that was going through my head quite a lot was can I just grab him you know I wanted to be as gentle as possible when you know Johnny was anxious me being there I could tell um, and I was thinking you know should I just do it and I thought that would be the wrong thing to do um, he was being responsive to me so I thought let's just talk and see what happens I mean obviously my memory from that day is really hazy because yeah. I was just in such a state of despair um, so I don't remember the first time that I saw him but I just remember just standing there looking at this young guy that was just a few years older than me on his way to work and um, again it, it, it put everything into perspective and just began to think to myself I can do this maybe I, maybe I could be like him and there's something about a voice and a face that you want to be drawn to. Mm. You could have been repelled if it was someone who could have freaked you out or put you off. There must have been something about the demeanour, the, the way the person was talking to you that drew you. Yeah, it was, it was kindness. Just you know, kindness of a stranger. It really was. Um, someone that... He was, he was very sort of... Um, Persistent. He wasn't going to let me jump. But at the same time, he was just so um, gentle about it all. And um, it didn't take long, really. It didn't take long for me to start questioning my intentions. Johnny went over the railings. Yeah, he came back over, yeah. To safety. Yeah. And at what point do you remember the last time you saw him? Because you weren't to meet again. No, so the last time I saw him was when the police, um, when I was holding him after he went to scramble back over the railings and the police took him within like five, ten seconds of that and straight into the car um, and walked me, you know, ten paces forward and did a statement and that was it. That was it. <laughs> and you went on with your life? Yeah, I mean, I said to, you know, I, I, I think I remember asking the police, can I just say you know, it's okay, you know, good luck. And they said, no, just, you know, uh, it's, it's better that you leave it, we'll deal with it. How did you deal with that, the fact that you could never see this person? Well, it was okay because, you know, it wasn't my, it wasn't my um, tragedy, it was Johnny's tragedy, you know? So, you know, I was just trying to make sense of it all. Um, you know, I think the, the thing I was just most concerned about was did it ever make a difference and did he ever go back? And he never did. Um, and that was a pivotal moment for him, which was good. The story you've been hearing happened in 2008. Today, Johnny is a campaigner for mental health issues and he felt it was time to find the man who saved his life to track him down. His search captured the imagination of the press and social media, and it didn't take long in the end. When Johnny, Neil and I spoke, it was just 24 hours since they'd been reunited. You've met again? Mm-hmm. Can you believe that? Almost no, you know, almost, almost, almost no, because... You just, you know, so much time goes by, but you do think about it very often... Um, and um, yeah, it's, it's it's incredible. The reunion was incredibly emotional, very overwhelming, um, and um, but it felt like, felt like there was closure in, in the meeting that we had. 
Um, I felt like I was able to put that whole chapter to an end. And it's amazing because something very negative suddenly turned into something quite positive. You know, I feel like I've made a friend for life and um, just so grateful. It's difficult to hear, but Johnny is determined to tell his story so that it gives hope to others. In his words, you can recover and things can get better. This episode of Sounds Jewish was presented by me, Alan Dean, and produced by Sarah Peters.